Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Huzefa. And today, we have a really, really, really special guest. And his name is Daniel Finkel. I'm going to just talk a little bit about him before we introduce him. But this is such a good episode. Parents are out there listening. I encourage you, have your kids listen as well, because this is going to be really fun. We're going to talk about all the cool stuff that Dan's. Dan's done all sorts of stuff. He's uh, an amazing mathematician and teacher, of course, but he's also created and published some really impactful uh, math-based games to improve math fluency in all sorts of different areas. Uh, In addition, he's a TEDx speaker, which is amazing, which I want to hear about as well. And he's, yeah, so he's, he's done all this stuff. We're going to, we're going to talk about everything starting with his background. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dan to the show. Dan, how's it going? Great. It's really good to be here. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again for joining. I really appreciate it. So let's start with who you are, your education, all that stuff. How did you, you know, what, what's your educational background? Yeah. Uh, how far back do you want to go? Like I, pre-K. I, yeah, totally. <laughs> no, let's just start with the... Uh... Actually, no, in a way, it's where it starts. Like, I can remember being a five-year-old in the first, like, math thing I ever did, which was a drawing that you had to, like, try to draw it all in a single line without going over the same section twice or picking up your pencil. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And, uh, yeah, and I still remember that. And years later, I came back, and there's a whole mathematics to that, which I learned about later. And, uh, and it starts there. And I think I just was a kid who always was very interested in games and strategy and in math and the structure that that gave me. I was kind of, uh, I was kind of advanced in elementary school, um, even to the point that I think but, – but it wasn't even necessarily always so satisfying for me because I would get through stuff fast. But then there was just kind of more of the same usually. Um, and, and I kept being accelerated further and further. But um, – but it wasn't until I actually went to the Hampshire College Summer Studies in Mathematics the summer after ninth grade. Uh, and that was sort of my real mathematical awakening. And that's where I saw what math can really feel like to do, how beautiful it can be, um, how mind expanding it can be. And after that, it was hard to ever go back. I think I was really so interested in math. And a part of me ever since then was like, why didn't I see this earlier? Why did no one ever teach me this stuff? in this perspective on math. Um, can you, can you, can you expand on that? I'm curious. So what exact, what type of stuff did you do that summer? Yeah. So I think a big part of it was we were just asked really interesting, really difficult problems and spent our time doing them and spent our time thinking about them. So it went from here is a new idea. Even if you take a subject like calculus or something, which is kind of supposed to be really hard, or algebra or anything all the way down. Normally what people do when they teach it is they say, hey, here's this kind of problem that we're going to learn how to solve. Here's the way you solve it. Let me show you how you do it. And now you do a bunch of examples. 
Um, and what I had that experience, uh, the experience I had at Hampshire was here's a problem and we're not going to tell you how to do it. What can you do? Like, think about it. Like, what do you have to go on? Um, and that difference between here's an answer to a question you've just barely started thinking about, or maybe haven't thought about at all to here's a question and you have to dig into yourself to try to think of the answers to it. And you have to actually convince us that you've got an answer is it's a world of difference. And it's, it's really the reason you do math. I think is that it's so interesting when you have a real problem that you get to struggle with and it calls so much up from inside of you when you have a challenge that is worthy. Um, even in fact, even their test again, and they had a test called the interesting test. And I, and you know, this probably, you know, I don't know, 25 years ago or something. I still remember like half the questions on the test and some of them have stayed with me. One's really simple. Like, can you design a game that using a single coin that you have a one in three chance of winning? And I spent hours thinking about that. I spent and years afterwards thinking about all the different ways to do that. And you can attack that problem in so many different creative and interesting ways. Um, and what you find is it's weirdly hard. Like you flip a coin and if you flip a coin like three times and you win, if these things come up, it just never seems to come out to one third. And there are reasons that it just like defies, it defies your need to, to do that. And so, um, that experience, I think of getting to work with people socially, tackling real problems, coming up with it ourselves rather than just imitating what the teacher told us. Uh, it was just amazing. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the rationale. I don't know if you're from, super familiar with Singapore math, but yeah. Singapore, are, are you familiar with it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind that's kind of the idea. I, I, at least that's what it sounds like to me is similar to the way that Singapore math is meant to be taught. I just went to a conference with a gentleman named Bill Davidson, who's a teacher and now kind of like a consultant for Singapore math. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly how it, that's exactly how it's designed. Is for example, so in the seminar he gave the problem of trying to figure out the area of a triangle. Now it, this is how it began. He said, "Okay, I want you to take a square piece of paper." He gives us all these little squares, and he says, "All right, now I want you to to color in half of it, however you want." So some people colored it in vertically, like half. The other people colored it in horizontally. And I think there was one guy in the class that did it diagonally. Right. And so he said, okay, he colored it in diagonally. He's like, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, he said if somebody doesn't do that, he'll show the diagonal method. Be like, yeah, that's exactly right. So this is how you – this is basically taking half of a rectangle. All right, cool. Then he goes to the next thing. And then he draws a triangle – a right triangle, of course, and he says, all right, how can you maybe come up with the area of this? So the, it's it's that same idea, maybe scaled down a bit, but where you don't actually give the area formula, one half base times height, you're just like, okay, here it is. How can you do that? Oh, again, well, let me see. I'll, I'll make it into a full rectangle and then I'll take half and then you, exactly, you kind yeah. of come up with it. Uh, yeah, and I think my sense is that a lot of different curriculum or curricula can be taught in this way. If, if you're aware that this is what the experience of math can be like, you can use a lot of different materials in this way. Um, some are, some lend themselves more to it than others. Um, but I do think, and this is actually what we do at math for love, which is my organization is, is really whatever people are using as their curriculum. We try to say, start with a question, have that experience of, yeah, and, and something like the I've actually used that one also of the area of a triangle. Uh, 
it's so interesting. And you can sort of put that, um, you know, you can make a triangle where it's the base of the rectangle and some point on top. So maybe it's not a right triangle. Maybe it's an acute triangle and you can ask the same question and people have the formula can say, okay, well, that's the answer, but it's almost shows them that they don't really understand why it's the formula and what's really going on there. Um, and that even having answers isn't really like you really want an explanation and an intuition, uh, even beyond an answer. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of problem is a great, great problem to do with anybody. At, at what point in your educational path did you realize that you wanted to teach math after studying it? <laughs> it took a long time. Uh, yeah, so I, my dad was a college professor in the humanities, and I think as a result, I kind of didn't want to teach. Um, so I, uh, I went through college, and I was a math major, and so I you know, did a bunch more math. Uh, I went to the Budapest program in mathematics, which a lot of math students end up going to Budapest at some point. They've got a great program there, did a bunch more math there. And I got out of college and I decided I would become a teacher almost to like cross it off. And uh, I taught for two years at a school called St. Anne's in New York in Brooklyn Heights. Um, and I taught mostly high school, but also sixth grade and fourth grade uh, in the two years I was there. And then I decided I wanted to go back and be a student again. I came back to graduate school at the University of Washington. I was there for six years. And in the course of being there, I ended up uh, being on a grant where I was working at an elementary school. And I don't know, some, it, it really took until that time. Uh, this was probably eight years ago where I started to see that research mathematics is fun and it's interesting, but it's not exactly where my passion was. And there was a kind of need in terms of the number of people who I think really could love math and just never get a chance. And the number of people who could have such a, a like it could be such a vital and important part of their life and they're disempowered by getting turned off at a young age. And I just started to realize that that, that was the interest I really had was helping attack that problem. And it was kind of the skill set I ended up having also just by whatever coincidence. And, and were you pri at this school where you, what was the age group or were you all over the place or was there an age group that you? I was, the, I was with second and fourth graders then. That's awesome. I just taught for, I was subbing actually last year, uh, la the second end of last year, fourth grade math. It was so much fun. It was the first time I'd ever done that. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I taught fourth graders, I was still, I was teaching mostly high school and it really was a challenge because just everything I did with high schoolers didn't work at all. Um, and now it's one of my favorite grades to work with. And why do you, why do you think that is for high school like in, in the sense like it, things didn't work or? Uh, partly it was my style at the time was, uh, I was pretty improvisational and I would have ideas of the types of things I wanted to get to, but I didn't have, um, really strict plans. Uh, I, I, I played things by ear a lot. And with high school, for me, that worked really well in general. Um, but for the younger kids, I just needed a more concrete plan, I think. And a, I just needed sort of to know that I wasn't going to be able to think about one thing with them for like the whole hour. I'd need to like break it up more and just, yeah, it was just a matter of pacing and, and understanding the, the psychology and kind of the 
rate of learning and the way the learning would happen for these younger kids. Right. Uh, that, that makes sense. So yeah. t- tell us about Math for Love. Yeah. So uh, when I got out of graduate school, my wife and I, uh, her name's Catherine Cook, and she's been with me for this whole thing also. Uh, we basically founded this company in Seattle and we just started kind of like working our way up and it started very modest and, you know, we were working with, originally we were like doing some tutoring and then running after school classes, uh, started running classes for some gifted kids, uh, with a partner organization, the university of Washington. Then we started doing professional development for teachers that we, we were really well received. Um, we're doing more and more of that now. And, uh, and then we were called in, Seattle Public Schools hired us to essentially develop their summer uh, remediation program for mathematics for elementary school students. And actually, that's we're in the last two weeks of that right now. And we have 19 sites, uh, 60 teachers, and probably between 2,000 and 2,500 kids enrolled in that this summer. Uh, and we wrote the entire curriculum for it. So... That's just been this really interesting process of seeing the what we're doing branch out. And, uh, and the goal is really to change how math is taught and learned and to let everyone have at least the chance to fall in love with math uh, that, that I almost didn't get uh, and that really changed my life. It's to give everyone that chance. And yeah, it just feels like people are so receptive to that. And for us, it ends up being really interesting because we keep trying to branch out and do different things. And that means working with teachers, means working with students, means working with uh, organizations and also developing games and developing curriculum and and trying our hand at whatever we think will help with that project. That's amazing to hear how much you guys have, how big you guys are. That's that's really incredible. I actually, I have a friend in Seattle. I didn't realize that Math for Love was primarily, you guys were mostly based in Seattle or began in Seattle anyways. But my, I, he he runs a company called The Learning Professionals, Arthur Emery. I don't know if you've by chance heard of him. I don't know if I know him. I, I definitely don't know him. I'm, I've probably like seen the signs out around somewhere, but I'm not sure if I. I definitely don't know. Uh, don't know him or that anything about that. He's uh, he's the another guy. So we went to we both went to law school together in Chicago, and he right off the bat he left. He graduated and he didn't want to practice at all, and he yeah. just started getting into education and math because it's always what he loved. And then I practice actually for about four years and then i was always telling him like man i want to do what you're doing uh one day one day and then and, and then so now it's been about three years for me but yeah so he's he's kind of somebody that i look up to and and uh, try and get advice from whenever i can well, that's so, cool i have to look him up yeah he's an awesome guy so now i i really so math for love it sounds like you guys do all sorts of like amazing things as far as being you know the, the teacher training and really getting people to understand effective ways to communicate math where it's where it's actually exciting and i love that you want to you're passionate about it that's how exactly how i feel about math too and i think a lot of times if if it if it's just obvious that you're really enjoying it and having fun for some some reason maybe through mirror neurons or whatever it that sort of transmits to the to the kids and i always find that to be interesting it sounds like you're doing even more than you're doing all sorts of stuff it's really cool but but one of the things that i noticed that you do is you make games, and I think maybe board games, but maybe it's beyond that. Uh, you make games 
all around, all about math and yeah. getting good. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, and this also is personal for me because I grew up in a game playing household and I've always credited games to my own arithmetic skills, basically. Like from a very young age, I was playing cribbage with my brothers, especially. And do, do you know cribbage? Mm-mm, no. Yeah. It's, it's, um, strange British game. A lot of rules. I actually don't usually play it in schools because there's just too many weird rules. Um, but the game involves a lot of counting to 15. Like there's a lot of 15s. If you can make 15 out of cards, you get points for that. And you just very quickly learn to look at a hand of six cards and see every 15 that you can make out of it. And that's a useful skill to have. Like that really helps with arithmetic. And, and even more, I think this, strategic thinking of games that, oh, if they do this, I'll do this, ends up being a really powerful uh, logical framework that helps you in math also. Um, So one of the things we started doing is both collecting games that already existed and also developing our own that would target specific skills. Um, The idea being, first, that Games can be a stand-in for things like flashcards and things like worksheets and practice that if you play the right kind of game, you end up getting a huge amount of targeted practice on exactly the thing you need to be working on. And that's really nice. But it's not boring. It's actually fun because you're playing a game and you're motivated to do it rather than it just being like a chore. And that makes a real difference, I think, in, in whenever you're learning. Um, so... From early on, we've been developing games and creating variations on games. And at some point, probably in 2013, um, I forget exactly what happened. I think I had an idea that if you colored numbers using their prime factorizations in the right way, you should be able to see how multiplication and division works in a much clearer way. Um, and out of that idea, we started developing a game that we ended up calling prime climb. Um, it's essentially a race from zero to 101 that involves addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And, and, and let, let me, let me just jump in real quick. Let, can you yeah. just quickly explain? So prime factorization, can you give it to, give yeah, it to yeah. so, so prime numbers, there's kind of this technical definition of prime numbers, which I've always disliked because it's not illuminating, but the basic idea is primes are the atoms. Like if numbers are molecules, primes are the atoms that make up all of the rest of the numbers in terms of multiplication. So you take a a number like 15, that's made out of a three and a five multiplied together. And the three and the five are prime. You can't break them up into any smaller pieces. So the beautiful thing is that every number can be broken up into these prime elements, these atoms of numbers in exactly one way. They always break up the same way. And, uh, And so basically, if you color just a few of them in the right way, you can look at the colors and see exactly how all the multiplication happens. So to give you an example, like a number like 28 on our board, um, two is orange, seven is purple. So 28 breaks up in its prime factors as two times two times seven. So if you look at it on the board, it consists of three strips, which are orange, orange, purple, two times two times seven. And if you're on another number like 14, which is just orange and purple, two times seven, and you need to multiply it times two, you just say, well, what would happen if I add another orange to this? Well, then it would be orange, orange, purple. 
what it allows you to do is if you think that you, if you multiply and you get it wrong, you can just see that the colors don't match like they were supposed to. And it actually gives an intuition for how prime factorization works, how multiplication and division really work. Um, and until you really understand the prime factors, you don't have the whole story of how multiplication and division work, I think. What's, what's this game called? It's called Prime Climb. Prime Climb. And this is, and would you say, I, I'm going to get this. This is actually really interesting. Uh, and I, I actually love teaching prime factorization because I think kids seem a little intimidated by the concept at first, but then they always get it. At least I find they usually get it pretty quickly. And, and then, and it's, and there's a lot of uses for it. But if you, so, okay, Prime Climb. And then would you say that the, playing this game also increases just general fluency and mental mental multiplication stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think there's no question. And the reason is, is that when you're actually playing the game, you're it's kind of has a sorry-like element or a backgammon-like element that you're trying to bump people back to start. Yeah. Trying to land on prime numbers and you get cards if you land on prime numbers that do other special things. And so when you roll, you roll two dice and you have two markers. And what ends up happening is you have all of these options um, uh, that you end up getting this intuition for how the numbers work and developing a flexibility. Because what doesn't happen, it's, there's a lot of games, and I hate these kind of games, where it's like you're playing something fun, and basically the math is before you take your next turn, you have to do a math problem. And literally the math is just a, an impediment to having fun. But in this game, math is the engine. And if you're on 19 and you roll, I don't know, like a 10 and a 9, you can subtract 10 and go to 9 and then multiply times 9 and go to 81. Or you can subtract 9 and go to 10 and then multiply times 10 and go to 100. And you start to find that there are all these, there's just so many options. Um, and there are these great moves where someone like divides and bumps someone kind of out of nowhere in a way that seems like, oh, there's, you weren't even close to the person, but because you were able to like multiply and divide and add and subtract in some creative way you saw, you end up swooping in and having a really awesome move. Wow. I'm so intrigued. Uh, okay. So you know what I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. I'm going to buy the game and I'm going to play it with some of my, with some of my students and I'll, I'll videotape it, and then I'm gonna. Oh, so, fun. so all my, so all listeners out there, I'm gonna make a tape using this game. It sounds really cool, and then I'll, uh, I'll put it on the YouTube channel, and you guys can check it out. I'll condense it down. It'll be, it'll be short. I'll make it like three or four minutes, but yeah, and then we can, we'll check it out. I'm, I'm really excited. And uh, what about like with? Have you seen it tested with a lot of kids already or in different schools? Yeah. So we tested it with both kids we knew and also we brought it into schools. And actually, it was really funny because we, we kickstarted the game and it ended up doing great, actually. We earned like 300% of what we needed to, to do it. So there's a lot of response, which is exciting. But in the first, when we were making the video, we took it into a first school, um, which is kind of a gifted school. And we asked... Like, okay, would you play this game at home or would you like, how would you like this game? And the kids like jumped up and like were cheering and we were like, oh no, we didn't get any video of this. <laughs> uh, and we just were like, oh no. So we had one other school to go to, which was a, a much more like a higher poverty school, high free and reduced lunch school that we also were working at. And we were like, it'll be really interesting to see how this game compares in a different population and this time when we asked those questions we were ready with a video camera and again the kids sort of jumped up and were just crazy for it um and that one we got on video and we were able to 
put into our uh, Kickstarter video when we did it. So that was nice. But no, so so far it's really been well received. Um, and, and we keep getting, now that it's out in the world, we keep getting uh, more and more response about how people are using it both in classrooms and at home and how it's really uh, been positive. Do you have, do you, have you created or are you thinking about creating any games that are specifically tailored towards standardized tests like the ICSAT? I mean, I could almost imagine, I don't know, just as my thought, since you're so passionate about math, you may not even like the idea of, of a game for something like that. But I, yeah, I don't know. Have you thought about anything like that? Not yet. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's happened to us is we've started working with younger and younger kids. Like Prime Climb is targeted for 10 and up and you can play it with younger kids. Um, but like that's kind of the sweet spot is sort of like fourth grade and up. Uh, and, and while it's tempting to do those other things, what we found is that the younger you can get to kids and show them a positive vision of math, the more that ends up paying off later. Like it's really, like if you have a 10th or 11th grader who decides they don't like math, it's really hard to change that. There's a lot of work to do. But if a third grader, they're almost always still making up their mind, even if they've had some negative experiences. And you can really uh, help them, I think, a lot. So actually, the next game that we just are bringing out this probably October or November, putting the finishing touches on right now, is called Tiny Polka Dot. And it is for three to eight-year-olds. Um, and it's really just about a much more basic conception of number and dots in different arrangements and how to and counting them, adding, subtracting. And uh, it's really like a suite of games that kind of go from very young, like three, four, up to first, second grade. And uh, I'm actually really excited about that one. But we haven't seen it out in the world yet, so it'll be really cool when it gets out, though. I'm, I, yeah, we actually put that into our summer school curriculum that we developed, too, for Seattle Public Schools. And so we've been watching it being played in a bunch of different classrooms and it's been really, really cool. Uh, but that tends to be the way we go is towards the younger kids, I think. Got uh, it. Yeah. Oh, that make, no, that makes sense. Uh, I want to, sh- I'd like to shift the conversation now to our last topic and all this stuff has been great. Like I can't, I'm actually, I can't wait to try that prime game numbers. By the yeah. way, the way you described prime numbers, maybe it's, the, I, I've I've heard it described as Adams by one other person. That uh, do you know a guy named Terrence Tao at oh, UCLA? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I heard him describe it describe it the same way, uh, which is I mean I think it's such a really cool description, and and that really uh, I don't know that bring that brings a lot of meaning to to what they're all about. But yeah, but um, but anyways, so and Terrence Tao, if you guys are unfamiliar with him, he's a pretty brilliant mathematician. I think he won the Fields Medal, which is like the Nobel Prize of math in 2006. And he's, he's, he's like a real, really brilliant guy, child prodigy. Yeah. I I think he, he's in like really the top, top echelon of mathematicians working today. He's, he's an unusually brilliant uh, mathematician. I think I saw him speak actually, which was which was fun when I was in graduate school. Oh, really? What, what was he speaking about? Oh, I actually forget the exact topic, but he just, what was amazing was how he had analogies that were so simple to think about really complicated things. Like he, he was so clearly had thought about things that the, the complex was simple in the way he thought about them. You know, when I've seen him on interviews, that, and that's what always struck me about him too, is because obviously he's, you know, he's working on these very complex problems 
that most people probably can't really understand, uh, at least the methodologies. Maybe we could understand the problem. Right, but, right. but he always is able to exp- – yeah, he was always able to explain things in a way that's relatable. I thought that – and that's got to be a very unique talent when you're at that level. Yeah, I think you have to work at that. But the fact that he has it, I think – that's part of his genius, I think, is to, I think he, there's something where he's like, oh, the Koshi Schwartz inequality is really just like the pigeonhole principle. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who are like, the pigeonhole principle is a really simple statement that if you have like five birds going into four holes, then two birds will be in the same hole. Like it's a very sort of straightforward idea. And the Koshi Schwartz inequality does not look like that at all. And yet he saw how one was the outgrowth of the other, I think. And, and that's the kind of yeah, that's the kind of mind I think has those deep insights which he's had throughout his career. Yeah, it's very cool. Anyway, a little yeah, a little Terrence Tao. <laughs> Terrence Tao, little <laughs> Terrence Tao never hurts. Yeah. So so let let's. I want, well, this is what I want to end with. I want to end so a bunch of my episodes. I don't know how many, maybe fifteen or twenty, are related to the applications of math in the real world. Why have I done this? Well, obviously, I'm sure as you've seen way more times than I have, you've probably heard the question from different students, like, why am I learning this? What's the reason? What's the what's the point of math? I don't need it. And I very so very specifically, I'm trying to address that question because it's obviously it has probably the most applications out of any subject because math, you know, math really is it's a way for us to understand reality and make predictions about the real world. That's what it is at its core. So what I wanted to ask you was, do you have any really nice anal- uh, nice examples of ways that math is used every day to solve real life problems that, you know, something that, that kids or parents could really latch onto? Yeah, yeah. And again, for me, one of the fun things is like the problems themselves end up being so much fun to, uh, to do. And actually... On that topic, I also am a contributor to the New York Times number play blog, and that is a great place for kids to check out and parents to check out like really fun math problems to just get absorbed in. Um, so check out New York Times number play also just as a regular thing to go look at. But um, there's actually I have a great one for you that is related to prime numbers, which are such a fascinating thing because they were literally put forward um, in the study of large numbers, uh, number theory and and how that works, which relates a lot to prime numbers. Um, cause we still don't really know an easy way to find new large prime numbers. Like every couple of years, somebody finds a new largest prime number and it's a big hailed as this big result. Uh, but there's no like immediate use for that usually. Um, and in fact, when Hardy wrote a mathematician's apology, however long ago that was like a hundred years ago, he put forward number theory in the study of prime numbers as an example of something that not only wasn't useful, but could never be useful. It just like the numbers are so big, it doesn't describe anything. So it's like, it just, there's no point to this. It's just, we just do it for the beauty. And yet within, before the 20th century was over, prime numbers ended up being used for cryptography in this fascinating way that, people basically figured out a way to use large numbers uh, to encrypt messages. And what was so fascinating is you take two very large prime numbers, which you can think of like two very large atoms, put them together, and it's very hard to factor it apart back into the prime factors if you didn't know what they were to start with. So 
it effectively allowed people to publish this large number and other people could encrypt secret messages to them, which only they who had those two prime numbers could decrypt. Um, and it led to a whole new kind of cryptography, which is used in everything today. Uh, it's called public key cryptography. Uh, even in this, it's mind blowing because what it means is I could encrypt a message to you, which even though I just encrypted it, I could not decrypt it again. Like it's somehow just this one way process. It's like falling through a trap door where like once you do it, you can't go back up again. And this technology underlies so much important communication, like any high like if you're dealing with like credit card numbers and like super secret bank information and, you know, government information that's online, it's all protected by this type of cryptography, which originally came down to prime numbers and the way they're multiplied together and the difficulty in unmultiplying them. Um, and that essentially formed the backbone of cryptography that made the Internet possible. Now, isn't isn't that I feel like I remember because I was a computer science major, but I, I don't, yeah. you know, it's been a while. I don't remember this too well, but I feel like I remember talking about double encryption where you basically, you do, you do that multiplication and then you encrypt the data, you send it over to the other guy and then right. they multiply your number by two more numbers. Right. And then now it gets to be a bigger number. Then you send it back. Then they divide by their numbers, but it's still exactly. encrypt. Right. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's the problem of like how you can share your, right. You can sort of, I think the classic example is like if you want to give something to someone, you put your own padlock on it, send it to them. They put their padlock on it, send it back to you. You take your padlock off, send it to them. They take their padlock off and you've now just succeeded in sending them secret information even though neither of you has each other's keys. Right. And because multiplication is commutative, you can do it in any order. Yeah. Yeah. Putting your padlock on doesn't screw up their padlock. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. See, it all ties together. Talk about your game, prime, uh, the prime, what's it called? Prime, prime Time. Yeah, we, we talk about Prime Client, and we talk about the applications of prime numbers. So, full circle. Perfect. That's right. that excellent. And I, I know you got to go. That we, We're running a little long. Just last thing, really quickly. Yeah. You were a TED speaker. Can you just tell us briefly what was that? How did, what did you talk about? How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, well, my wife, Catherine, uh, at some point she was like, you know, you should really have a Ted talk. She, uh, nominated me for the TEDx talk. Uh, they said, they got back to me and they said, well, what would you talk about? I took a piece she had written called five principles of extraordinary math teaching, uh, which is really, uh, in a way it's about improvisation in teaching math and, and how to teach math. So it comes alive. They liked it. And then I had to prep and it was a ton of work. Uh, but wrote a talk, memorized it, and delivered it on the on the stage in Seattle. And that's been really fun to have. And that's actually, I'd encourage people to check it out. Five Principles of Extraordinary Math Teaching. It's on uh, YouTube. And um, that'll give a good sense of some of my further thoughts and beliefs about uh, how you can really teach math in a way that, that brings it to life for students. Excellent. Okay, so guys, we've mentioned a lot of stuff. We mentioned Math for Love. We mentioned this TED Talk. We mentioned Prime Climb. Everything, I promise you, everything will be in the show notes for you to check out. If you want to check out the show notes, you can go to www.scalarlearning.com. If you have any questions or comments for me, you can email me at huzefa at scalarlearning.com. I'd love to hear from you. Dan, if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? 
Uh, yeah, I would say go to mathforlove.com. That's probably the best way. And if you want to just reach me directly, it's dan at mathforlove.com, M-A-T-H-F-O-R-L-O-V-E.com. It's awesome talking to you. All right. Awesome. Thank you. It's awesome talking to you too. And thank you. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I really appreciate it. Guys, I hope you enjoyed everything. If you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, please do so. we got new episodes, new great guests coming out every day this summer. So a lot of new content coming your way. That's all for this episode. See you guys next time. Take it easy.